Almighty and everlasting God, we do well always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we do that today. We thank you because he is the word incarnate who became flesh for our sake, and we thank you for your inscripturated word that we have before us, the word that his half-brother James wrote under your inspiration. We ask that you would give us understanding, that you would give us guidance, and I pray, Almighty God, that as uh, the minister of this church, your appointed preacher, that I would preach your word unadorned by human wisdom, and that I would rely on the power of your spirit to teach your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Wisdom, most of us think, is a good quality. Parents want their children to be wise. Actually, that's not a word we use all that often anymore. We usually say smart. We usually say successful. Right? Those are the buzzwords. We want them to be advanced. But you don't hear parents too often today, or even grandparents, say, I want my children to be wise. It's just not something that rolls off the tongue anymore. But the scriptures, quite frankly talk very little about success as we define it. And the scriptures, quite frankly, talk very little about advancement the way we define it. The scriptures, however, have a great deal to say about wisdom. There's an entire category of literature found primarily in the Old Testament that is called wisdom literature. The Psalms, do you know the rest of them? Proverbs, Book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and what's the last one? Ecclesiastes. When we read James, James is reading like wisdom literature. Jesus' preaching rings like wisdom literature. Now, if the Bible talks that much, and when you look at your Psalter, it's a large chunk of your Old Testament. It's pretty thick. The Bible upholds wisdom as an important and essential quality for the covenantal people of God. If God thinks it's important, then we should think it's important. And let me just say this to all of us, especially those of you who have children or grandchildren. You really want to stress wisdom as opposed to mere knowledge. An easy way to to differentiate between the two is knowledge means knowing something. Wisdom is knowing how to apply it in a godly fashion. For instance, you might know the book of Matthew. might have it memorized. But if you don't pay attention to the commands there, for instance, it's very possible for you to be a Bible scholar and spend ten years studying nothing but the Gospel of Matthew and have the whole thing memorized. You could do it. Take some effort. But... You don't listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and you are consistently committing adultery or murder even, then you're not wise. You may know a lot of things about the book of Matthew. You may know a lot of things about the Sermon on the Mount, but it's in your head. It's not in your heart. You see, there's a difference. Wisdom resides from deep within a person. It's not stuck between their ears. And the Bible here is telling us that we, excuse me, hopefully I'm not getting that strep throat. 
The Bible here in this portion of James is telling us to chase after heavenly wisdom. And that's what I really want you to understand today. That wisdom is a quality that all of us, whether we have children or not, no matter what our age, we need to be chasing after. Because if we're still breathing in this world, then that means God wants to either teach us something or use us to teach somebody something. It's just that simple. No matter how old you are, no matter how feeble one may think one is, then God has something to show us and teach us. And he has things he still wants to do through us if we are still here. Because when God is done with us in this world, guess what? He takes us home. Until he does, then we have business to attend to. And becoming wise is the essential characteristic that God wants to see from his covenantal people. Sadly, sadly, it is a quality that at least in James's time, 2,000 years ago, was lacking. And guess what? It was lacking 1,000 years ago. And you know what? It's still lacking today. Now let's take a look at the text and figure out what James is trying to get at. He asks us a question first. Who is wise and understanding among you? It's presupposing that maybe there's some people in some of these congregations who are wise and understanding. So, I'm asking you, are you wise? Are you understanding? Do you want to be considered a wise and understanding person? When I perform your funeral, quite frankly, do you want people at your viewing to be able to say, that was a wise man, that was a wise woman. He had understanding. She had understanding. And she tried to pass it on. I think all of us would say yes. That would be something I'd love to hear said at my viewing. I'd love to hear that. Well, let him or her show by good conduct that his or her works are done in the meekness of wisdom. We see that wisdom is meek. What does Paul say about knowledge in the book of Corinthians? Knowledge puffs up. And then Paul says, but love does all kinds of wonderful things. You see, wisdom is meek. Jesus was meek. And I think we would have to argue that Jesus was wise. Moses is considered the most humble man around. We have to consider him to be wise. Made one bad mistake and was forbidden from going to the promised land. And most of us would have cut him a little slack. I mean, come on. People get on your nerves, right? Imagine being in charge of all of the ancient Israelites. Fun job description. And you make one mistake and you <laughs> pound that rock in anger. And God says, um, I didn't command you to do that. That one little slip up. You're not walking into the promised land, but I'll let you go up on a mountain and look at it. That's the God we deal with. One mistake, Moses couldn't enter the promised land. One mistake. So, let me ask you this. Are you showing by your good conduct, your actual actions and words in the real world? <clears throat> Not just for an hour on Sunday. Are you showing that your works are done in the meekness of wisdom? Now, let's try and tie this together with some of the things that James spoke about earlier. You don't have to turn there. But if you want to flip one page back, 
Remember, James begins his epistle. One of the first things he says is this. If any of you lacks wisdom, in chapter 1, verse 5, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then we're told to ask for that in faith, because if we don't ask for the wisdom in faith, we're double-minded and we shouldn't expect anything from the Lord. So here's the, the nice thing. If you don't feel as if you're a wise and understanding person, and all of us should want to, even if we think we're wise and understanding, we should want to become more wise and more understanding, we need to be meek and we need to ask the Lord for the gift. Now, this tells us that wisdom can only be found from God himself. Proverbs chapter 8, the Lord founded the earth by wisdom. He is wisdom. You will not find wisdom apart from God. You might find knowledge apart from God. And as this text will progress, you might find something that looks like wisdom, but it's not from God. After all, there was a thing called fool's gold, right? Back in the day, there was something that looked like gold, but it wasn't gold. It wasn't the genuine article. Wisdom, if it's true, godly wisdom, if it originates from God, must, according to this passage, show itself by good conduct the works that are done in meekness of wisdom. Then it continues, but, but, one of James's favorite words, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. What this, what this verse is telling us is, don't say you're wise. Don't say you're understanding. Don't lie, which is a commandment. Don't boast, which is a commandment. Don't do all those things if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. Now, in that first gospel reading, we saw a classic example of bitter envy and selfish ambition, didn't we? Just to repeat what I said in case you were thinking of something else when I read that. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, if, if you were there, what would you think of that? That's the man I want to follow. Now, keep in mind, that's at the end of his earthly ministry. For three years, he's been doing all manner of things. The high priests say this man does many signs. Brings Lazarus back from the dead feeds 4,000, feeds 5,000, and that's just what's recorded. Heals all manner of people, casts out all kinds of demons. Jesus was a well-known public figure at the end of his life. A bit obscure at the beginning. Came from nowhere. But at the end of his life, when he does this most awesome of miracles, the political rulers are so selfish, so self-seeking, so filled with envy that all they can think about is losing their position, not realizing that he's, he's greater than we are. Why would you align yourself against someone who has the power over life and death? Dumb move. It's the only way to think about it. You can't fight City Hall, right? It's a common phrase. You can't fight City Hall. You might go and have your, your word in court, but you're probably going to lose. Why would you align yourself against someone who just brought somebody back from the dead? 
because their sin, their selfish ambition, blinded them. Look in verse 16. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. I skipped to verse 15. We'll get to it in a moment. I want you to think of any conflict you've ever been involved in. Especially church conflicts. Can you find there envy, self-seeking, selfish ambition? I guarantee you that's going to be the root of it. That is the root of it. There are two types of problems in churches, irrespective of denomination and geography. There are doctrinal problems. If I come into this pulpit next week and start saying, you know what, I've been studying and I just don't think the virgin birth really is an historical fact, now the ruling elders have got a real big problem on their hands because they have a pastor who's gone off the beaten track. Okay, And if I say that, guess what? They have the responsibility to report me to the presbytery and bar me from this pulpit the next week. If I go off and say something like that. If come around Easter time I say, you know what I've been studying and the resurrection, it's just symbolic. He never actually rose from the dead. Big problem. That's a doctrinal problem. When it comes to doctrinal problems, there are two types. Things that we will be willing to go to death for. And they are found in the Apostles' Creed. We cannot compromise on any of them. And then there are other doctrines that are significantly a little less important that we might have a disagreement about, but nothing to go to the stake about. Listen to me carefully. The vast majority of problems that occur in a church like ours, a conservative Bible-believing church, has nothing to do with doctrine. It comes right back down to this. Selfish ambition and bitter envy. Basically, you have people wanting their own way and not getting it. And they react in a poor, immature, unwise fashion. They show that they have no understanding of certain things. Again, there's a big difference between doctrine and selfish ambition. We should be zealous for the proper doctrines. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You will never back down from that one. But is that what we often fight about in churches? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. Now, this church has had fights over big things like that. A long time ago, though. And those fights were worth it, and they were proper. But since then, they've been what I call common, ordinary church problems over small, little things that are not going to add up to anything on the Day of Judgment. They're not Apostles' Creed type of stuff. It's not the virgin birth. It's not the resurrection. It's not the incarnation. It's not the physical return of Christ. It's little stuff. And James is being harsh about it will say, well, we just have a difference of opinion about it. Well, that's not what James is saying. And we can have a difference of opinion about things. But you see, if two wise Christians 
have a difference of opinion about something that is not a cardinal doctrine of the faith, then they will what? They will show that they are wise and understanding by good conducts, works done in meekness of wisdom. Because, verse 17, the wisdom that is from above is what? First, pure. The wisdom that comes from God is pure. It is unadulterated. It's peaceable. It is gentle. Willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. See, that's what James is talking about. When he's talking about works done in good conduct, works done in the meekness of wisdom, he gives us the definition in verse 17. If you see these type of qualities, then guess what? Even if the people have a difference of opinion, you won't have a war. You won't. You'll have a peaceable discussion. You'll have both parties willing to yield on things that are not cardinal doctrines. Again, I have to keep stressing that. I'm not talking about cardinal doctrines. If you don't agree with me about the virgin birth, then you know what? We can have coffee, but we're not. I'll, I'll pray for you. can't pray with you because you're, you've slipped on a, a major, major doctrine. You can't. You have to stick with those things. But how often in many churches do we see an attitude that is wise and is pure, peaceable, and gentle? How often in many churches are two parties willing to yield, again, on secondary issues? Not that often. And if you don't believe me, just call some other pastors. If I tell you the truth, I'll just tell you, well, yeah, that's 99% of the problems that I deal with are petty. They're not all that important. They're selfish ambition and bitter envy. And this is a tactic of the evil one. Divide and conquer. How do I know that? Well, look at the text. Verse 14, back to that. If you have bitter envy and selfish Self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So we see that these horrible qualities, I don't think any of us want us, hey, I want my children to be bitterly envious of people and I want them to be self-seeking. We don't want those qualities for our children or for Christians. (laughs) These are not good quality traits. Hey, champ, listen, if you want to get ahead in this world, you have to be bitter and you have to be envious. Have any of you ever said that to your children and your grandchildren? Absolutely not. Because we know that's not the way to live. Verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Now, when you're explaining something to somebody and you use a word in a strange fashion, sometimes you'll do this, right? You put it in parentheses. Like, for instance, you say, oh, that was a he did a he, um, something or something. Well, he's a fantastic quarterback. After the guy's just thrown five interceptions, he had a fantastic game. Neil O'Donnell back in '95, '96. How many interceptions did he throw? I mean, he was throwing right to the Cowboys, right? I, was, I didn't even live here, and I remember he didn't realize that black jerseys are who you throw to, <laughs> not the white ones, not that same quarterback over and over. 
Running back for touchdowns. He had a great game. You put it in parentheses. When we're reading this verse 15, this wisdom, you can almost hear James putting it in parentheses. This wisdom, this wisdom does not descend from above. It's fool's gold. And it doesn't reside from God. It doesn't come from God. It comes from the earth. It's sensual. Now we use that word sensual in a couple of different ways. Lascivious. It's uh, dirty. Right? But it also is used in a more technical sense that it's sensual. It has to do with your five senses. None of you have six senses. I know some of you think you have ESP. Once in a while I think I do, but most of us only have five. Now, let's see if I can remember them. Sight, hearing, smell, touch, taste. Got them all. That's what he's talking about. Sensual. It has to do with the earth. It has to do with what you can touch. It has to do with what you can see and feel and smell. Show me. Show me it and I'll believe. Show me it. But James goes further. It's demonic. It's demonic. Let's just talk about that for a moment. There's a wisdom that Paul calls the wisdom of this age in the book of Corinthians. It's the same thing that James is talking about here. And James is saying that its origin is straight from the pit of hell. It's demonic. Most of us don't think too much about that. Why? Because we're too busy thinking about being successful or advancing. We don't have time to think about the unseen world. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. It's not where our battle is. The battle is with unseen forces of darkness principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It's a very important quality to develop if you want to be wise in understanding. The ability to see that is what is going on with your eyes is not all that is there to the story. Yes, one of the fans is making a funny noise. Just, just ignore it. If you have selfish ambition in your hearts, if you are bitter or envious, and all of us have it at one time or another, you need to be careful because that type of thing is demonic. Now that doesn't mean that you're demon-possessed. Don't, don't get scared here. If you're a Christian, it's impossible for you to be demonically possessed. It's an impossibility. Because the Holy Spirit resides in you. John tells us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can, however, be demonically influenced. Right? If you eat enough demon food, it might start tasting good. I'll let you decide what you think is demon food. It's demon food if it's dealing with this world. If it's dealing with eternal things, it's angelic food, so to speak. 
Each of us needs to look into our hearts and say, what do we want? What do we want Middlesex to be known as? What do we want our families to be known as? Do we want to be known as a church where selfish ambition and bitter envy and self-seeking and petty-mindedness are the rule of the day, are the par for the course if you're a golfer? Are the rules of the court? Or do we want to be known as a place where wisdom that it's pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, and without partiality is the rule of the day. We have got to decide. And remember, without partiality, this is flying back to chapter 2. When James says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And then he talks about looking down on the poor. Okay? It's very important Our culture worships money. Our culture worships power. Our culture worships success. And I put that in quotes. If the church starts to function in that manner, it's not functioning as a church. It's functioning then as a business. And not a very good one at that. Because even a business, if it focuses too much on success, too much on money and power, it'll take a shortcut. And it'll become unethical. It will break the law. It will begin to cheat and steal from people. And a church certainly can't do that. And then the text wraps up with this unusual phrase in verse 18. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Some of you come from an agricultural background. Do you, do you, do you sow fruit? Do you plant? I mean, sowing is planting. Do you plant fruit? No, you plant seeds, correct? Fruit is what the seed brings up. But here, James is, looks like he's almost got it backwards. What James is saying is that when we're wise Christians, we bear fruit. Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, when it overwhelms our life, when it overflows, it then is planted in peace by those who make peace. If you know someone, and they're always making war. If you know someone, and they're always looking out for themselves, and you see these other qualities consistently, and again, we all have them. Envy, selfish ambition, self-seeking, it's in your heart. It's in mine. It's got to be cut out like a disease. But if it's the overriding theme of a man's life or a woman's life, then something is horribly wrong. The fruit is rotten at the core. And it comes from demonic realms, which is, to me, terrifying in some respects. But in other respects, I'm not worried about it because demons aren't God. God will just, demons are nothing to God. So what I want you to take away from this is this, very simple. Chase after true, heavenly, godly wisdom. You cannot find it anywhere but in this word and on your knees. That's where it is found, no place else. Not in the newspaper, not in the gossip columns, not from sports, not from any place else, but on your knees with this word in front of you. Now you might be saying, Pastor, I can't get on my knees. Fine. Lie down. Sit down. 
on your knees is a metaphor for praying. This word is where the truth is found. But if this book remains closed and on a shelf like that, and if all you hear during the week is my half-hour sermon, that's not a lot of food. Could you get by on one meal a week? Maybe for a little while. But after a while, your health is going to significantly deteriorate. So I advise you, don't think that this is enough. Chase after heavenly wisdom with all of your might. If you want to know what wisdom looks like, open the book of Proverbs. It says, get wisdom, chase it like it's silver and gold. Go forth and do so. Let's pray. Lord, the world would have us chase after a lot of things besides wisdom. We ask you, Father, for the wisdom that we need to make the proper choices. In Christ's precious name, amen.